Welcome to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the gaping political divide. I'm Ed Fallon. I'm your host, and we are coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa, the heart of America's heartland. If you value what we do, folks, we could sure use your support. Uh, go to the donations page on the Fallon Forum website. That's FallonForum.com. You know, or if you run a small business or if you're involved with a nonprofit doing good work in the world, you could also consider becoming a sponsor. And uh, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Market and Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Uh, Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Uh, Gateway also has an excellent local produce selection and check out their catering and floral services as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, thanks also to Vibes Kitchen and Bar serving creative interpretations of American classic food and drink. Yeah, great food, um, great customer service, a relaxed and welcoming atmosphere, and an awesome outdoor patio. Uh, Vibes is the perfect place for parties and for watching your favorite sports team. Learn more at Vibes' Facebook page. Here's what we've got for you today on the program, folks. A, a wind professional, uh, Rob, Rob Hawk with uh, Trusted Energy, he's going to join us to talk about the wind, uh, wind components of the climate bill. We'll also talk about the concerns that I and others have about the 45Q tax credits that relates to the carbon dioxide pipelines. We'll also talk with Rob about the um, issues around disposal of wind turbine blades. That's become an issue here in Iowa and maybe elsewhere as well. Uh, and then Margaret Klein-Solomon with the Climate Emergency Fund is going to join us. We're going to be talking about escalation, disruption, um, political action, and, uh, and the psychology of climate uh, response of how, how people how people are dealing with the climate crisis. She's a clinical psychologist. We'll get her take on that as well as get her take as the founder and director of the Climate Emergency Fund. And to wrap it up, uh, Kathy Burns with uh, the Birds and Bees Urban Farm is going to join us. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Iowa State Fair display and whether or not it is unfair to backyard chickens. Or more accurately, I guess, people who raise chickens in their backyard. The chickens probably don't care. But first, uh, you know, so, so last week I had this um, great conversation with Jen Senko. She's an author, a filmmaker. She was on this program to discuss her film and her book, uh, The Brainwashing of My Dad. Now, the premise of that, of course, uh, if you didn't have a chance to listen or watch, the, pre the premise is that, you know, what passes for informational programming on commercial radio you know, again, specifically those programs hosted by the shock jocks, that, that is essentially an attempt to control an audience. And they, they work hard to make people afraid. Uh, they divide and conquer. Um, more and more, it's become a tool of the Republican Party, and the conquering part has gone very well for them. You know, and, and again, the Republican Party, especially that extreme fringe, let's call it what it is, the Trump fringe, which has you know, increasingly become the dominant element of the Republican Party. And so uh, you know, the, the brainwashing that the shock jocks accomplish, you know, that, again, to be clear, that's not the same kind of brainwashing you'd find if you were a guest at, say, Guantanamo Bay, or if you joined a religious cult. Um, that's very different. Or if you, you know, lived in undemocratic countries like Russia, Myanmar, Saudi Arabia, the list is long. You know, talk radio is a different kind of brainwashing. It's a, a more passive brainwashing. Uh, they don't waterboard you there. Uh, you, you have to want to tune in. But, you know, you know, basically, though, I mean, how many people are imprisoned in their cars alone for hours and hours, and that becomes their, that, that becomes their friend? The, the, the voices they hear on talk radio become their pals. Uh, and, you know, you can listen to that without being brainwashed. I mean, I, I listen to the shock jocks. I do because I must, and because that way you don't have to. Uh, and I, you know, I think I preserved my ability to think clearly. Um, some people might disagree, but uh, <laughs> I might be the exception. I don't know, I, you know, but I do know that millions of people have bought what the shock jocks are feeding them, you know, and I, and I want to talk about more about that. Yeah, and I have um, two real life examples of my own to share. And I also want to share some of the responses I've had to last week's program, uh, some disagreeing with me, most agreeing with me. But first, uh, what about the assertion that there is also brainwash brainwashing on the left? That's, that's one of the criticisms that was made of my conversation with Jen Senko. Well, there's brainwashing on both sides. It's the old both sides thing, you know. 
you know, I, and I would say, well, there's definitely bias on the, quote, left. And let's define that a little more. You know, some of it pretty extreme. Uh, most of it pretty moderate. I mean, NPR, for example, you know, and I would hardly call NPR progressive in the traditional use of the word progressive. You know, I mean, how could they be given their corporate sponsors? I mean, NPR used to be used to be publicly financed. Now it's more and more of their revenue stream is coming from corporations. And I, I still think it's the best thing I can find on the dial for the most part. Uh, but they do take a more status quo approach on, you know, most stories. So, but um, but you look at look look at the extent to which the extreme left has taken to canceling people it doesn't like. I mean, it, it, the, 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 the extreme left it basically likes to eat its own. <laughs> uh, one very excellent example is uh, is um, our state auditor Rob Sand. Um, he's, uh, he's he's I mean I'm very a lot of respect for him. Does great work. He's really good about about finding that middle ground where you can, you know, bring people in from across the political spectrum and yet also accomplish the kind of things that we really need done in public office. Uh, he's been canceled multiple times by the extreme left. Um, hey, I, I've been canceled many times, uh, repeatedly. Uh, very honored. In fact, uh, never as a state legislator did I have protesters in front of my home. Uh, we had that happen recently, <laughs> even though I'm not in the uh, legislature anymore. That's how extreme the whole cancel culture and the extreme left has become. But I would say that all not all all was, that was standing. I would say that the extreme left is not brainwashed. I, I think they're they like to dine in a vacuum. Okay, they only want to hear what reinforces what they already believe, and and you know, and they don't care about communicating with a broader audience. You know, I think most most of the people in that universe that I know don't even consider taking the time to talk to folks on the right. And okay, vice versa, that's often true as well. But being in a liberal sound chamber that just tells you what you want to hear is not the same as what's going on with the extreme right. You know, I, again, CNN, MSNBC, even NPR, you know, they, they don't outright lie. Uh, they, they pretty much try to be you know, fair and tell the truth, even though they have a perspective. And it's a perspective that's comfortable with the status quo, which, um, you know, you know, again, perhaps they only give you their part of the story, and that's unfortunate, but it's not lying. But make no mistake about it. The, the voices you hear on, on the shock jock stations, they are, they're, they're just blatant liars. I mean, they don't always lie, but they lie enough. <laughs> I mean, climate denial? I mean, I just just last week I heard Clay and Buck denying climate change. That's a lie. Uh, the election was stolen. That is verifiably a lie. You know, COVID, nothing to worry about. Go take ivermectin. Those are that's a lie. You know, the Trump can do no wrong thing. Uh, Joe Biden can do no right. Everything. Joe Biden is to bill. He's he's to blame for everything, including high gas prices. Oh, but no, noticeably when gas prices go down. Uh, Joe Biden doesn't get any credit for that. And again, I, I'm not, not a huge Biden fan, but uh, so much of what you hear on shock jock radio is just off the wall. I looked at Google. Google says brainwash to brainwash is to make someone adopt radically different beliefs by using systemic and often forcible pressure. OK, we've kind of talked about that. Wikipedia says brainwashing is the concept that the human mind can be altered or controlled by certain psychological techniques. I think that's important. You know, we are left and right of the political spectrum. We are able to be influenced in a negative way. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I mean, there's plenty of examples in history. Uh, one of the most commonly referred to ones, of course, is Adolf Hitler, who, um, you know, was a master at taking propaganda, him and his, his crowd, his oligarchy, uh, and, uh, and used it to tap into things that the German people were concerned about, but used that divide-and-conquer uh, approach and um, created this set of propaganda that was uh, very effective at mobilizing a otherwise very intelligent and decent people to do horrible things. So we, we are all at risk of being brainwashed if we are not careful. And unfortunately, the voices on shock jock radio have become so strident, so effective, uh, so persistent, and so consistent about the lies that they have been very, very effective at brainwashing a big chunk of America. And so back to 
the brainwashing of my dad, Jen Senko's film, her book. I agree. I think she's spot on, you know, and, and I've got my own stories as well. OK, I, lots of stories, but I'll just share two with you briefly. I've got a neighbor, really nice guy, uh, used to be a, uh, a, a McCarthy Democrat years ago. <laughs> and, uh, you know, lives by himself, has for a long time. His companion, often during the day, during the afternoons, out on the, out on the porch, is listening to, you know, WHO radio. Uh, Rush Limbaugh, Clay and Buck, uh, Hannity, those are his pals. And uh, he wants to talk about that. He's desperate to talk about it. And Kathy and I the other day agreed to sit down on his porch, and he was kind enough to bring us some wine and cheese. And we sat down and we talked about, um, we didn't really talk, actually. We just kind of listened. And he just went on, and everything he said, Everything he said was the talking points that I hear all the time when I listen to that stuff. And there was, you would try to insert a question or a counterpoint, and it just went nowhere. He had his mind made up. His mind was made up by what he heard day after day, hour after hour on the radio, listening to the shock jocks. And again, just as Jen Senko points out in her movie, in her book, uh, there's, a long, there's a list of people that uh, the shock jocks want you to hate. And uh, they include the poor, blacks, other minorities, uh, uh, women, gays and lesbians to some extent. But the worst of all, the worst offender at all is Democrats. Uh, Democrats are the worst. And this neighbor of ours, nice enough guy, buys that. You know, the other story I'd share, and this one I don't have as much um, contact with anymore, but a friend of mine, uh, a guy I trained with, the guy I trained with most closely when I was a runner in high school. Nice guy, kind of a happy-go-lucky, dopey kind of guy. Uh, funny guy. Um, never disagreeable. But uh, I kind of regained contact with him a few years ago. And he bought it. I mean, he was just spouting that same stuff. Libtards, Democrats, uh, even down on, quote, rhinos. I mean, it was all the stuff you hear. Feminazis, it was everything you hear on those programs, spit right back out, uh, verbatim, now taking his gospel. So I don't doubt that, you know, and I've heard, I've had a lot of responses this week. Uh, you know, I, thank you for those of you who have who shared stories about your family members who got sucked into that vortex of radical right-wing hatred. Um, you know, the, the, the shock jocks, again, they, they've tapped into this discontent that a lot of us have in this society, especially white males, uh, and uh, it's 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 like a drug. It is like a drug. The the dialogue and, and, and you know and the dialogue has to continually get more and more intense, more and more sensational. If you look at where talk radio is now, it's more bizarre than it ever was 15, 20 years ago. You know, because think about it. If the shock jock plateaus at a certain level of anger, angst, outrage. Uh, then the audience will eventually lose interest. Things have to continually to ramp up. It is like a drug addiction. And again, it's about, it's about economics. I mean, these stations are making, the corporations that own them, are making incredible amounts of money doing this. And you look, you look at the advertisers who, who pay to be on that station. There's Viagra, there's a, a guns, there's a, there's a lot of uh, you know, medical stuff, uh, fear-based stuff. Um, it varies, but a lot of it is appealing to that audience that is discontent. Um, you know, beyond, beyond economics, it's now about political power. I mean, talk radio used to blast the Republicans, you know, and, and along with blasting Democrats. Now, the, the, you won't hear a bad thing said about the Trump wing of the Republican Party. Sure, they'll attack the, quote, rhinos, the Liz Cheney's of the world, but uh, they'll never say a bad thing about Trump, and they'll never say a good thing about Biden, or any Democrat for that matter. So again, I've had lots of feedback this week. Um, one person writing, we all know people who have been poisoned by the Fox hate and division dogma. Someone wrote, I have a good friend who used to co-host a talk Christian station focused on Fox light politics. It took her two years of therapy to deprogram from that vitriol. She's much happier, a much nicer person now. Now, on the flip side, I had some criticism. Someone wrote, if you could only censor others with different opinions and thoughts, or maybe load them, on, load them all on rail cars and send them to re-education camps. I like how that person kind of flipped the whole Nazi script, <laughs> you know, implying that those of us who are critical of this type of brainwashing are the ones who might put 
you know, dissent, dis, uh, dissidents on rail cars and send them to camps. Uh, someone else wrote, your comments add nothing but animus to the conversation. I'd be real interested in you covering the activity of the FBI and the media and the Russia hoax over the past five years. Nothing but lies and distortions. Again, a page straight from straight from straight from Shock Jock Radio. And my favorite of all, LOL, are you effing serious? Another S lib opining poetically about Fox, but never CNN or MSNBC. This is some S libery dude, and I want out. Three exclamation points. Okay, those are the kind of responses that just make my day. Uh, anyway, folks, uh, go back and uh, check out uh, Jen Senko's book, her movie, and again, last week's podcast, if you want to see what I'm referring to this week. Okay, this is Ed Fallon. We've got to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be talking with Rob Hawk about wind energy on the Fallon Forum. And you know, this uh, this whole situation with the uh, shock jocks is becoming like a religious cult. And on that note, I want to leave you uh, with this. We are building a religion. We are building it bigger. We are widening the corridors and adding more lanes. We are building a religion, a limited edition. We are now accepting callers for these pendant keychains. To resist it is useless. It is useless to resist it. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Vibes Kitchen and Bar in downtown Des Moines at the corner of 13th and Walnut serves clever, creative, modern interpretations of American classic bites and drinks. The Vibes team offers great food and customer service in a relaxed and welcoming atmosphere. Vibes is the perfect place for your party or function, and it's got an outdoor patio ideal for hobnobbing with friends and co-workers or for watching your favorite sports team. Learn more at Vibes Kitchen and Bar's Facebook page. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, at a time when some of the big corporations who control most of the media uh, continues to grow, you know, our, our niche here is more important than ever. So please support what we do. Uh, go to the Fallon Forum website. You can donate. Even better, you can become a monthly sponsor. And, you know, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Westrom Optometry. That's uh, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Again, later in the program, Margaret Klein Solomon, a clinical psychologist who founded the Climate Emergency Fund, will be joining us to talk about kind of the radical side of climate activism. Uh, we'll also be talking about how, how, how the climate crisis is affecting people, you know, psychologically. We'll get her, her perspective on that. And later in the program still, uh, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to be talking about um, whether, whether or not the poultry display at the Iowa State Fair was fair to folks who raised chickens in their backyard. Okay, but before we do that, we're going to get into wind energy a bit with uh, Rob Hawk. He's with Trusted Energy. And uh, Rob, uh, we've all been trying to scratch our heads and figure out the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. I like to call it the climate bill. 
Yep. What's your take on the on the bill? I think it is the most comprehensive renewable energy policy that has ever gone through our Congress. And it is phenomenal for anything and everything uh, renewable and energy efficient. And so the biodiesel, the ethanol folks, the wind, the solar energy efficiency all have a chance, got a chance at the plate. And we've never had anything specifically designed for us. Now, there are some other things in there for Medicare and Medicaid uh, that was good. But as far as something that truly was a stimulus package for renewable energy, this was it. This is a sweetheart deal for us. And we've never, ever had a bill for renewable energy that is just uh, all-encompassing. So I think it's phenomenal. It's been just absolutely great for us. Now, as a as a state legislator, I had a my my practice was that if I could agree with fifty percent plus one, say fifty one percent of a bill, I would vote mm-hmm. for it. And you know, and on by that standard, I would have voted for this bill. Uh, but I don't have to have that standard anymore. I can take my time. I can dig into it. I can analyze it. Um, kind of see how the administration starts playing it out. Uh, but even before all that happens, uh, you know, and I, and I think everything you say, I, I, I agree, but there's also some concerns about the extent to which this further entrenches the, the power of the fossil fuel industry uh, with um, requirement of, you know, more leases on public ground, uh, probable expansion of drilling in the Gulf, uh, almost certain expansion of drilling in the Arctic. Uh, I mean, how do, how do you... How, what, what, do you, what do you have to say to people who are really upset about the bill because of those provisions? Um, yeah, I definitely would be on the 51% there. You know, the big thing is these are provisions that are going to support renewable energy or, or energy in the United States. And I was talking to someone else earlier that we do not have to deploy for drilling uh, and we do not have to bring any coffins home for drilling. Uh, in the United States. So is it, um, you know, they, we need oil for wind turbines and we need uh, diesel for our trucks. And so we really, you know, I've, 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 I've been to too many funerals. I've attended too many uh, uh, ceremonies for fallen soldiers. So I'm not upset by this. Uh, I'm just, uh, yeah, there's, we need to be independent. We need to not be at the jeopardy or at the mercy of other countries. Uh, and this is just one way for us to be more energy independent. Now, you know, we have plenty of oil and gas and, and uh, coal already, maybe coal less so. We certainly have plenty of oil and gas already in the, quote, pipeline. I use that mm-hmm. in a figurative sense, although we could talk about it in a literal sense as well. But um, but all, all what this does or what these provisions of the bill do, it... it it makes sure that we're going to continue to rely on those. So maybe right now to make those wind turbines, to fuel those tractors that are raising biodiesel, uh, you, you know, some, some, some fossil fuel is needed, although less and less all the time. I mean, we're finding more and more ways of addressing those energy needs with renewables. So that's kind of a short term. I mean, it, you know, if, if we wanted to, we could be done with that pretty soon. But this locks in additional production additional development, research and development for a long time. Doesn't that seem, mm-hmm. incon- to me, that's inconsistent with what science is telling us about the, the depth of the climate crisis that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the interesting things, uh, I was at a, a forum discussing about the efficiency and how vehicles are using less fuel than they have in the past. What we're using a lot more of is oil for our t-shirts and our shirts and our clothing. So, the Under Armour has a high level of oil content, petroleum content, in order to make that nice wicking shirt. So, you know, we think that oil and gas needs to be in the in the engine or a gearbox, but oil and gas is being used in T-shirts. And, sure. You know, I, I know Iowa State has done a wonderful job of developing technology for uh, shirts and, and and silverware, and that can be made out of plant products. So. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I did not see that provision. I have to say because I was so excited. You know, I've been in this industry for 28 <laughs> right, years, right. and finally, we have a 10-year runway. You know how phenomenal it is to have a 10-year tax credit. The oil and gas industry has an 80% tax credit. Sure. Um, 
and they've had that for the last 90 years or something like that. We get a 10-year runway, so I guess I've probably overlooked the stuff that came from the oil and gas industry. I <laughs> well, got to tell well, you. <laughs> well, tell, tell, tell me more about the 10-year runway. What, what? How is how are you? How are we certain that, uh, for example, every Republican voted against this bill? So, yeah. what if Republicans regain the House and Senate, and then say in two years capture the White House? Uh, could no. they just negate all of that? Could that 10-year runway become a two-year runway? I've had this on a lot of conversations. Tax credits are something that Republicans love because it's not a it's not a um, you know um, an entitlement program. No one's writing a check right. uh, in order for you to get money. What they're doing is more or less giving you an opportunity to not have to send sure. in a check. Right. And so historically, and, and there's a good amount of Republicans that are uh, that are support renewable energy. I mean, it's not one of those. Uh, either side of the aisle, both sides of the aisle are very much uh, supporters of renewable energy because it comes down to it is it's independence. It really is independence yeah. when it comes to renewable energy. Well, I'm trying I'm trying to find my way into the mind of a Republican con- congressman, woman, or or U.S. senator who would vote would. I mean, I understand uh, even former U.S. Congressman Steve King from Iowa, arguably one of the most far right members of the U.S. Congress, was supportive of wind energy. Uh, I know Chuck Grassley, Senator Grassley is, but why would they? Why would they vote? If that's the case, why would they vote against the best bill ever in terms of renewable energy? Yeah, and that's the thing. That's uh, I've been asking uh, people. You know, Congressman had uh, Congressman King had the uh, wealthiest district in the United States. Uh, it was between him and one in Texas that went back and forth between who had more renewable energy. Uh, the Fort District, which I'm in, has more wind power, solar power, ethanol, and biodiesel than any other district in the United States. So he was a big supporter because it was a good majority of his base come, um, came from renewable energy. So exactly right. There's a lot of really good uh, conservative Republicans are out there that are going to support renewable energy, and they definitely support um, Tax credits. So again, why, so, why, why would why would the why would the members of Congress uh, vote against uh, their best interests or the best interests of their constituents? I mean, I, all, I mean, yeah, Senate, I Representative Feenstra is the is the is the guy who replaced Steve King. He voted mm-hmm. against that bill. Is that how how do we explain I, that? I think it was just a party thing. Hmm. Uh, they might not have had anything. I've saw saw this when. Um, when the Democrats had a supermajority under Obama where, you know, the Republicans weren't getting anything into it. So uh, it passed. Um, if it changes, if the white, if the Congress changes in, well, it's probable that the House is going to change by 25 to 75 seats. Senate, they say, is still up in the air. But we're not going to have the, the stalemate that we have in Congress going forward. So... I don't know. I don't see that we're going to have uh, a lot of pull, uh, pullbacks on the tax credits. And historically, I haven't seen tax credits ever pulled out of any program. They just usually are allowed to expire uh, because, you know, uh, for, for us, we do a lot of planning based around those tax credits. And if all of a sudden sure. yeah. someone pulls those tax credits back, you're basically pulling the carpet out from yeah. underneath them. So, so I, I, think I don't see any of this getting pulled back. That's a really good point. Um, and, and I know that, you know, the business community, well, people in general, whatever you're doing, you need some reliability. You need to have some predictability. Mm-hmm. And that's yes. one problem with our system of government. Things can change drastically from one, oh, yeah. one election to, an, to the next. But you're probably right about this. I mean, I remember when I was a legislator, there, were, um, there was one, one tax credit bill in particular that I was pretty, uh, pretty um, fond of that I worked on with Republicans. That was the historic uh, historic tax credits, historic renovation mm-hmm. tax credits. And uh, we got that passed with a small amount of money. And then every year it grew a little bit because it was popular. And it was popular across the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I, I see your point, and I think you're probably right. I'm still, like, mystified as to why all Republicans would vote against a bill. And especially, like you said, in the 4th District of Iowa, more wind, energy, solar. I, I didn't realize solar. That's new to me. But, but certainly wind biodiesel, ethanol, more, more than any other district in the, in the, in the U.S., and yet you've yeah. got a, a representative voting against it. That, that seems surprising to me. But, again, you're probably right, probably party line, Politics. party discipline. Party line. Yeah. Yep. So, and um, when you look at the voting, it really was party line voting. It would all yeah. right down 
Yep. Well, the Democrats had a heck of a time in the Senate get it, getting it, getting to party line voting, <laughs> so, yeah. and yeah. that may be where right. that may be where a bunch of the concessions that the fossil fuel industry come from is a compliments of Senator Manchin. But um, let me ask you about one other provision of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act that um, is of great interest to a lot of um, people in the Upper Midwest, and that's the uh, 45Q tax credits. That's the uh, money that would go to support carbon sequestration. And specifically, more familiar to people, uh, are the, uh, the numerous carbon dioxide pipelines that are proposed to run, uh, run CO2 from production facilities like an ethanol plant to storage places underground in North Dakota, in Illinois. Um, those projects wouldn't be happening without the 45Q tax credit. And those are in there and generously funded. Um, oh, yeah. That... that um, that would have been that would have been a big red flag for me. But what are your what are your thoughts on that? I sit on our well, I, I sat on our Farm Bureau board for ten years, and this has been a conversation we have had for a long time. Is um, the ethanol plants and some of the other plants are uh, other um, carbon creating industries are conscientious of their carbon index and it allows then an option in order to curb the the carbon emissions and so it's it's nice because these farmers the these uh, corporations these entities are not wanting to be outwardly disrespectful of their environment they're very uh, concerned about their impact and so it is um, something that that we're finally able to do in order to offer ethanol, biodiesel, and other um, yeah. manufacturing so, that has a carbon so component. I, I'm I'm not at all convinced, uh, Rob. I mean, I mean, I again, I don't, I don't. Bruce Rastetter with Summit Energy is, or Summit um, mm-hmm. Summit has various uh, subgroups. I, I I don't see that corporation is being particularly concerned about climate change. And I certainly look at some of the other corporations involved, Valero, um, ADM. These are not companies that historically have given a darn about climate. No. And I, I, I think they're in it for the 45Q tax credit. And I, I, I really yeah. question whether or not any of this is going to actually reduce our carbon footprint and, and benefit the environment. It's certainly a big disruption for the landowners whose property it's going through. And uh, I know that I think about 40% of the landowners along the Summit Pipeline route have uh, agreed to settle with the company, but that's less than half. <laughs> There's a lot of people who yeah. haven't settled and a lot who probably won't, who will force the company to go to eminent domain, which is always an ugly mess. So yeah. to me, I, I mean, and maybe we disagree on that, and that's, all, that's fine as well. <laughs> but, oh, well uh, I'm, I'm, you know, you know we've got to do something. And uh, the byproduct, if a uh, CO2 pipeline bursts, you're going to have some really green crops where that that burst. Uh, well, is it going to be well, hold catastrophic? On. Oh, Go ahead. Or you could have what happened in Satarshi, Mississippi, and, and a lot of people end up being, ending up in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that was in a valley. You know, we don't have a lot of valleys along the pipelines. I mean, there's going to be a consequence at all times. And there is there is an effort. There um the, the the companies that are building these transmission lines, they're going to have a heck of a upside, uh, like a forex return on their money once they get up and operational. It's phenomenal, but they also have a lot of risk mm-hmm. until they get to that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've been they've been spending a lot of money on getting that pipeline to the point. I know there was a big oil and gas pipeline uh, going. I mean, it was going to be able to get natural gas to the upper um, northeast. And it would have been cleaner than the fuel oil that they burn mm. in the Northeast. Mm. And because of politics, they killed this natural gas pipeline to the Northeast. So well, there's a lot of risk. Rob, I've got to run to a short break here. But uh, real quick, um, in the news on wind energy, of course, the Iowa Utilities Board announced that it would end its investigation into the disposal of old wind turbines. Uh, there are a lot of people mm-hmm. who are concerned about that in terms of the eyesore, in terms of the pollution. Um, your thoughts on the, uh, the uh, disposal of wind turbines. Is that anything we need to be deeply concerned about, or is that going to be a problem we solve? Yeah, this, the wind turbine blades, it'll get mitigated. It's not going to be something that sticks around forever. I mean, 
uh, it will be resolved. It just takes time, and I know there's technology. I know GE has something where they can blend the the components into concrete, and there's different things that are coming along. Um, yeah. You know, I know they're burying burying the uh, the wind turbine blades um, in Wyoming and other places, coal mines, coal mines actually are getting <laughs> yeah. a lot of wind turbine blades, yeah. which is funny. You know, they got these huge strip mines and they're mm. able to just fill, put them in there. But the downs, I mean, they, you know, they can, they're not going to leach into the groundwater well, and all true. of a sudden then, uh, show up in your tap water the next time you turn on not, the faucet. Yeah, they're not so. a coal ash pile. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, uh, exactly. Rob, so. uh, i got to run to a break. Um, thank you uh, so much for joining us. Folks, we've been talking with Rob Hawk with Trusted Energy. Rob, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Hey, folks, when we come back from a short break, uh, we're going to be talking with Margaret Klein Solomon with the Climate Emergency Fund. Uh, interesting conversation about the use of uh, civil disobedience in response to uh, concerns about inadequate climate action on the part of governments and businesses. Your thoughts on that? Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, you can support this alternative to those shock jocks I talked about earlier by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Uh, check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And thanks to uh, Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. Uh, thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Clipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet, and the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, later in the program, Kathy Burns joining us to talk about the chicken display at the Iowa State Fair and whether it was fair to backyard chickens. But first... I want to welcome Margaret Klein Solomon to the program. Margaret and I go way back to working on the Iowa caucuses back in 2015, 2016. Margaret, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Ed. Hey, now you are the founder of the Climate Emergency Fund, and there was a great story in the New York Times recently. Uh, one, one element of that story was the conversation about funding for the Climate Emergency Fund. And that some of that raised eyebrows because some of the funding apparently comes from uh, people in the oil industry. Yeah. Um, so actually, I'm the executive director of the Climate Emergency Fund, and I was a founding advisor. But <laughs> the founders, Eileen Getty, um, one one of them, is as you said, she's you know her her grandfather, John Paul Getty, made his his fortune from oil from fossil fuels and um so that was what the article was was kind of capturing that fact and that similarly uh some of the rockefellers have really taken on uh fossil fuels including through disruptive protest and infrastructure uh you know direct action kind of nonviolent direct action work um so, yeah, so we got great coverage, um, but we're actually funded. I mean, Eileen 
uh, you know, is a founder and she's donated over a million dollars, um, which is terrific. But the Climate Emergency Fund has over 4,000 donors, um, big and small. Good. And um, so and so the 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 uh, the oil people who are well, the people who come from families that made their money in oil. Yes. They 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 have concerns about climate change now. Who wouldn't? Well, well, but there's well, remarkably, there's still some people who don't. And I, I listen to them on the on the uh, commercial radio uh, dial frequently, and it's just incredible to me. I mean, I heard Clay and Buck last week describe climate change as basically a hoax. Still, um, so yeah, they're they're still out there, but it's nice but to know do, that. What do they think is going wrong with the weather? Oh, it's cyclical. Come on, Margaret. You know the climate is always changing. I mean, it's always changing. Come on. Um, we need oil. But so, the, so this is encouraging that you've got people who are, who are, who, whose history is in that industry, and yet they are willing to fund not just action to address climate change, but in this case, uh, pretty extreme action. I mean, we're talking about civil disobedience, about disruption, about escalating the response to our government and and businesses in action to a very high level. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist by training, and my core theory of change has always been uh, that we are in a mass delusion of normalcy, right? We're pretending that, that things are basically normal and talking about the future and our plans and... Uh, yeah, as though we weren't uh, accelerating into the greatest catastrophe that humanity has ever faced. Mm -hmm. um, and so waking up, that's that's the metaphor to me that makes the more sense. We need to realize this is an emergency. This is not some issue. And to do that, yeah, you need to, the disruption. It's that, that That's the point, is that normal mode the, the gears kind of cranking on is a one-way ticket to disaster. Right. So so nobody in that New York Times piece and just in general, the theme comes up over and over again. No one wants to be doing this, right? I'm not a fundraiser. <laughs> that's, not, that's not my calling in life, right? The, none of these activists want to be chaining themselves to soccer posts and to <laughs> buildings and whatnot. We're, we're doing it because we are desperate yeah. to uh, wake people up and treat this like the emergency that it is. Right. And so well, what kinds of actions has the Climate Emergency Fund funded? What, what, what have you, where have you put your money? All right. So the first note is that we fund only legal actions or activities, but some of the groups that we support uh, or yeah, take part in nonviolent civil disobedience. So, for example, some of the groups that we support have been doing these sports disruptions and museum disruptions um, that you might have seen. They disrupted uh, the French Open, the Tour de France, the British Grand Prix. Um, they've glued themselves to frames, uh, not, not harming the painting, but of several, uh, masterworks, uh, disrupting the kind of museum and art tourism. And they always, you know, when they do this, they have dire warnings, um, share, you know, on their shirts or, you know, communicated, um, through their presence, you know, signs that they're holding. Um, and they've also done, you know, they've, they've, uh, just stopped oil in the United Kingdom. They've done a lot of uh, fossil fuels, uh, infrastructure occupations. They've really, they really, during April, they, um, you know, shut down the fossil fuel industry in parts of the United Kingdom through just incredibly brave and disciplined and strategic, nonviolent, uh, civil disobedience. And so, so how, what has the public reaction been to, I mean, and we could take each of these separately, but to, to that one, for example, uh, especially given the, uh, the, the the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, that's that's putting it lightly, uh, and the and the disruption of fuel uh, into your into the EU from Russia, uh, has that um, tainted public opinion against such actions? These kinds of activists who are willing to disrupt normalcy in the way that I'm discussing, they are never popular. And I'm talking about <laughs> Martin Luther King was sure. 
despised when he was alive. These, I mean, this is a, you know, activists are like, you know, like the conscience of the country, right? Like, oh, you know, we need to do things differently. We need to change. There's a problem, right? No one likes hearing that. Right. So, yeah. Right. So the, the activists, yeah, they, they get a lot of, uh, you know, when they block socks games and whatever, they get people booing them and angry at them. Um, but even so, it's really, really, I mean, honestly, it's really not important whether the activists are popular. They can be unpopular and still change public opinion drastically because they're still breaking through that uh, wall of denial and and getting if because it, yeah again it doesn't matter if people like them they're not they're not running for office right <laughs> what they're trying to do is get everybody to actually focus but, on this issue but aren't they also trying to get isn't part of the whole movement's intent is to when I say that I mean the the movement to to get us to really act appropriately in response to the climate crisis isn't part of that. The, the goal is to get more and more people to care. And if you're alienating more and more people, is that counterproductive? Again, I like, so it's okay if the public thinks, oh, those activists are annoying. If they don't, as, as you know, evidence shows that they don't, but it alienate people against the issue. Mm-hmm. So it's not, yeah, honestly, it's, it's really not a concern, but it's, okay. um, we, I mean, yeah, the, the activists feel, and, and I feel that it's, um, we've just tried every other way. Okay. And, and I tried I, I, every polite, um, you know, non-disruptive approach and it, and it, the results are just unsatisfactory. And, and I ask that question to somebody who has been arrested six times for acts of civil disobedience, uh, five of them, four of them, I guess, relevant to climate change. Uh, so I, I get it. <laughs> but uh, how far, how far uh, should, if, if we're talking to people who embrace the notion that it is time to disrupt, it is time to engage in civil disobedience, in your, from your perspective, your advice, how far is how far is it okay to go to do that? Right. So first of all, that's awesome that you're interested in doing civil disobedience, whoever, you know, this hypothetical person. And uh, the first thing you, that you got to do is get trained because uh, doing this kind of disruption without uh, very significant training, they, they do eight-hour trainings. Um as, you know, it needs to be done safely um, with de- things like de-escalation training um, for people who might want to get past you. Um, so I would say it's very important to be nonviolent. Um, violence uh, makes everyone and society move backwards. Um and by, by maintaining nonviolence and we keep the movement open for mass participation in a way, yeah. Um, and I think it's important that we do things publicly um, under, under our own names, um, not, not under the cover of darkness. So, I, and, so no, no Guy Fox masks disguising your Yeah, identity. so if, yeah. You're gonna, if you're going to break the law and do an uh, act of civil nonviolent civil disobedience that can be an honorable thing i absolutely but to do so i do think uh it means including the the legal consequences okay so here in iowa in iowa there there was a probably the most prominent action regarding climate change in recent years that pushed people you know beyond the comfort zone yeah a lot a lot of climate activists were not okay with what happened uh jessica resnicek and ruby montoya uh, vandalized the Dakota Access pipeline multiple times over a period of many months before they were well they, they they weren't caught they turned themselves in and they did that again under cover of darkness they weren't doing it openly um, it was regarded by some as violence against property they they didn't endanger anybody they didn't endanger themselves either but how would you would, would what, that, what did they do uh, they they uh, they used blow torches to put holes in the pipeline this is before the pipe was operative 
Um, they used it to damage uh, valve stations. Um, they did some pretty significant damage. Um, at least, I mean, I, I don't know the details about that, but um, I think that's still a matter of discussion. But um, there, were, there were plenty within the movement who thought, well, that was really cool. Uh, we needed that level of extreme, extreme action. There are others who said, well, that went way too far. My own concern was, while I totally respected their passion, I was concerned that it was, it was moving public opinion away from supporting opposition to the pipeline. What would be, what would be your take on that? Um, I'm not totally sure, um, but I am very sure that the Climate Emergency Fund doesn't fund that kind of approach mm -hmm. but i'm not i'm not uh going to condemn them right uh and, and neither did i <laughs> now um as a clinical psychologist my last question for you margaret how more and more people are stressed out about the climate crisis as they should be how do you recommend they deal with that emotional and and, and mental distress thank you this is really and truly my specialty um so you should welcome and process all of your feelings with self-compassion and non-judgment. It's okay to feel terrified or grief-stricken or enraged or depressed or whatever or uh, guilty or whatever it is that you feel. It's 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 fine and it makes sense and we're in a really intense, incredibly bit huge situation here. So big feelings should be expected. In fact, if you aren't having them, you should check in. <laughs> am, I, am I in denial here? Right, or like, right. What's going on? So process your feelings. Talk about them with others. Don't be alone with this. Mm -hmm, right. And let it drive you to action. That's mm. really the key. Yeah thing is, it, it, I mean, those feelings are telling you something. Yeah. And and it's that we're, we're in danger and we need to transform. So let's get yeah. busy. Well, Margaret, I really uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you again for having me and for uh, all of your work. Uh, you're, you're like the original uh, climate radical <laughs> activist. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we've been talking with Margaret Klein-Solomon of the Climate Emergency Fund. And when we come back in a minute on the Fallon Forum, Kathy Burns will join us. We're going to be talking about backyard chickens. Welcome at the Iowa State Fair or not. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of Architecture by Synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Back at you here, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit doing good work in the world, you can also become a sponsor of this program. Uh, so, Kathy and I went to the Iowa State Fair on what turned out to be the busiest day in the fair's history, 128,000 people. Yeah, it was crowded, and we did some fun things, and then we went to the... Uh, Nap Center for the uh, the parade of of, uh, of corporate agriculture. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. I did, and and that was fun too, in a way. But as we encountered three years ago, because we didn't go to the fair for two years during COVID, uh, we saw this gigantic display of the right way to raise poultry, pretty much. And Big buildings. that means that means 
very conventional and very industrial. And it amazed us, although the, the posters were not quite as derogatory about backyard yeah, poultry. It, it, they it just is, left that whole part yeah, out. It kind of, yeah, they, <laughs> instead of dis, dissing uh, backyard chickens, they just kind of ignored it. Right. Which is interesting to me. Right. Yeah. There was... That's progress, I guess? There was another display that I guess we didn't see when we were in that building. And it was a lady with some little chicks. And, and I heard a part of a video that she did backyard kind of chicken raising. But we didn't see her. But there was no big display about it. But this this display was... Uh, I don't know. They, they, were, they had all the leghorns in a great big wire cage segmented with in each little group and that supposedly is better for the chickens to be <laughs> kept in I don't know four hens in they, they, a three they, by three space they each if they had a foot apiece that was stretching it it was but that is considered the healthy safe way to raise the chickens and produce the eggs and the chickens were able to Get their water yeah. and get their feed See, and, the, and lay their eggs. It's the same thing with kids. Kids should not be allowed to go outside. They should be kept in small rooms. Playing video games. Video games. You know, slip the meal <laughs> under, the, under the door for them. Make sure they have enough water. Um, oh. Make sure they've had all their inoculations so they don't get sick to any or exposed to anything. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of that's that's kind of the. Ch- I mean, I'm being facetious, of course, yes. but that's kind of the, the the model that is being held right. up as good for chicken raising. Well, the big. The big uh, poster listed three categories of chicken rearing, and the first one was conventional, obviously That's the best, yeah. <laughs> which, which said they housed their hens in small groups. That's those groups of four that are right next to, between a, with a wire cage between them, the, the next group of four and the next group of four, but these four are in very tight quarters. Uh, it says the eggs roll from a slightly sloped floor onto the egg belt, which takes the eggs to the processing where they're checked for imperfections, cleaned and packaged, etc. So I, I do notice that they, they, they made a point of saying that there's no difference between a white egg and a, and a, and a brown egg. They did. And, and when I, I would agree with that, but what they, the implication was, since most backyard chickens are laying brown eggs, the implication was our eggs, our conventional eggs from... Leghorns who, who lay white eggs are no worse, no different than you know your 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 cage free or your your That's uh, right. the, or your free range that raise brown eggs. The difference between the white and the brown is the white eggs are for the most part leghorns and they are the most reliable layers. They will lay pretty much every day, whereas some other breeds might lay five times a week or four times a week. The eggs happen to be different colors. They're all delicious. It depends what you feed your chickens, and, and they were honest about that. Well, the second type of raising chicken fashion that they <laughs> delineated here was enriched colony, which would, would would have more hens together in a bigger space where they can stretch out and scratch and do things hens well, that, do. See, that, that sounds like a, to me, what they're describing is, an industrial building where there's no separation, where you don't have four hens in a cage, where they each have a foot. What's this? They're, they're you housed have, in medium-sized groups. Well, meaning larger groups, and they probably have less space. They might. That's my guess. I, I've never heard the, the the description enriched colony. It sounds like a it sounds like a, one of Great Britain's um, imperial outposts where. They felt like they were treating the natives better than they did oh, in, say, my. Ireland. Oh, my. Um. Well, the third category was cage-free, and it listed some of the qualities of that. And those are obviously the three acceptable types yeah. of chicken rearing, uh, not like what we do, which is backyard chicken. They're in a big open pen. They are protected from predators and all of that. They're kept very safe. But um, but they th- we have 12 of them living together. And 11 now. 11. Oh, Yep. <laughs> uh, that was not a predator. <laughs> but uh, the display seemed to have been sponsored by, or at least the information was provided by, the Iowa Egg Council, which is connected with the American Egg Board. That's a group that during the 70s created the incredible edible egg slogan <laughs> that a lot of us know. And right. we, we agree, eggs are incredible and very edible. 
<laughs> and uh, but we just don't ing- yeah. agree that the big industrial well, they, cramming they, the hands they, together they, is the best. They way conveniently to do it. ignored the reality. I mean, do, do folks remember the the uh, various salmonella mm-hmm. and E. coli uh, situa- situations affecting the large confinements? I mean, we have two egg producers here in Iowa. Iowa, again, the biggest egg-producing state in the country, uh, A.J. DeCoster and his son, Peter DeCoster, who did what, what they were supposed to do prison time. They might mm-hmm. have been able to buy their way out of it. But they were, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were responsible. They were deemed responsible and negligent for these huge salmonella outbreaks right. that killed people. You don't have a lot of people dying because of backyard chickens. Well, we, we love the fair. We love all the displays, we, except for the ones that disregard small-scale agriculture and kind of homegrown stuff. I, I just yeah. think the fair can do a little bit better, and we tried a few years ago to work with some folks uh, communicating that, and we'll try again. Well, again, I guess it's a step up that they've totally taken backyard chicken out of their, <laughs> their display because it was, it was very dismissive when they had it in there. So, well, Hey, Kathy, thanks for, uh, thanks for uh, joining us to talk about this. Uh, thanks to all of our guests today, uh, uh, Rob Hawk, Margaret Klein-Solomon, and to our production team of Sherry Hardina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy, and myself, Ed Fallon. Uh, thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Vibes Kitchen and Bar, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Remember, your support for this program matters a whole lot, so go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about how you can make a difference. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another hour of cutting-edge talk radio.